When Kimia was in grade eight, she knew she wanted to change the world. So she made a list. If I could change the world, I'd do so many things. Clean the air, for one. I would invent a giant air vacuum and clean the air of dirt, pollution, and any other harmful sort of thing. I'd create peace and end war. I would stop bullying so nobody would ever feel threatened. I would make everybody happy. If I could change the world, I'd make Ron Weasley real and marry him. That's Kimia reading her plan to make the world a better place. I'm Dan Meisner, and this... This is Grown Ups Read Things They Wrote As Kids. Hello, how are you doing? It is very, very, very nice to see you. This is a show where we go back in time to remember the good, the bad, and the awkward parts of growing up. This time, recorded live in Ottawa, we have poems about unrequited love, a big move to a very small town, and an old man in a library who may or may not be alive. This stuff is weird, it is wonderful, and it can help us understand who we are today. So think about who you were when you were a kid, and stick around. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Lenovo. At CDW, we get putting productivity within reach of remote employees. That's why I'm WFC, working from couch and moving everything within arm's length, like the microwave. Lunchtime. You should talk to the experts at CDW. They can orchestrate a more efficient workspace solution using light, powerful devices from Lenovo to keep your teams productive from anywhere, couch included. Yeah, but do they have grabber claws? Whoops. IT orchestration by CDW. People who get it. Learn more at cdw.com slash Lenovo client. When Diane was 15, she kept a diary, and at our Ottawa event, she shared a couple of excerpts. Now, just before the show... I asked Diane what her diary entries were about. She said, early spiritual thoughts and early carnal thoughts. Please welcome Diane back to the Grown Up Street Things They Wrote As Kids stage. So, yes, um, as Dan said, these are experts from my ultra-super-secret journal that I kept under my mattress in 1972 when I was 15 years old. And I was living at CFB Moose Jaw, and uh, my dad was the base chaplain. And you should probably know that my dad was a minister. Um, Sunday, May, uh, Sunday, November 5th, 1972. Does Sunday school ever depress me? I guess it's because I don't believe in God anymore. It makes me feel so sad when I'm there. It ruins my day. I wish I could forget about church. I am seriously thinking about getting stoned on weed. It's, it's supposed to open your eyes and help you understand things better. Bill said that he'd help me do it, not next weekend, but the next. And I really can't wait. I shouldn't have opened my mouth to Beth, my friend, my, because she wants me and her to do it. I don't think Beth can take it, though. She's too practical. <laughs> Besides, I, to do, if I do it with Bill, he knows what to do. 
Although I've never been stoned before, for some reason I know exactly what it's like. I don't know why, I really, really, really want to do it. It makes me feel good to know I'm going to do it. That's good because I have to be in the right mood to do it when I do it or I won't have a good trip. And uh, it was uh, several many years later that I actually did smoke weed and that's a whole other story. <laughs> So then a few months later in January, well, another one of those Saturdays, those kind that I sit and think about the, think about the night before, last night, dot, 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 the most beautiful night of my life. It started out quite normally. We went first to Roto's 2, which was a pizza parlor in Moose Jaw, and then to Roto's 1. <laughs> there we sat, doing nothing except laughing and sighing. It was like a bar, everyone sitting, laughing, and sighing. Then Dave came, dot, 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 Dave, my love, or what? He sat with his friends, I sighed. He sat with other girls, I cried. Then, beautiful, he sat with us and looked at me with those deep eyes. I laughed and joked and found myself alone with him in his car. <laughs> We talked and laughed and cried together. Oh, God, help me. I love him. And then the final entry, April 1973. The funniest thing just happened. I was kneeling at my window, and I used to smoke out my window um, of my bedroom. And I looked up, and I saw a star. And I said, star of wonder, star of light. First star I have seen tonight. I wish I may, I wish I might, have the wish I wish tonight. And I wish that Kevin would still like me. <laughs> as I finished my wish, the star kind of flickered out, as if to say, sorry, your wish won't come true. <laughs> and I got really, really depressed. And I felt bad. And then for some reason, I decided to pray to Athena. <laughs> because I didn't believe in God anymore. Athena, I said, please let me have Kevin. I realize that I'm kind of using him as a person to have before I move, because we'd been transferred. But your friend Aphrodite married Hephaestus because she would be able to go with other men. And she is a goddess, so could you please grant me my wish? And at that moment, I looked into the sky, and the star was shining brightly as if to say, your wish will be granted. Then, a little ways away, another star came. It seemed to be Aphrodite. So far off, and then another star appeared. Hephaestus? I don't know. But it sure was weird. Maybe I had been smoking weed at that point. <laughs> Then it, Athena, flickered away. I said to myself, I will give it a test. I will pray to Athena, and if it appears again, I will know if it's true. Then before I got a chance, the star came out. Don't bother testing me. I am real. <laughs> I think I'm starting to believe in the gods. Dad said in his last sermon that the Greeks believed in God through many gods, so I think that's what I'll do. <laughs> Thank you. Diane, ladies and gentlemen, very nicely done.
When you're a teenager and just starting to have crushes and go on dates, it's a process of discovery. You learn about others, of course, but you also learn an awful lot about yourself. When Sari was in junior high and high school, she had a number of boyfriends. And for each boyfriend, she created an entry in what she called the Book of Evil, which was her way of evaluating boys on their looks, intelligence, and personality. Uh, So this is the Book of Evil, i.e. the Book of Ex-Boyfriends. Andrew, January to February 1994. Looks, nothing really amazing. Outstanding features? None, really. (laughs) Intelligence? He wasn't first or last when God handed out brains. (laughs) Personality? Nice, if a bit obsessive. (laughs) Memorable moments? He was my very first real kiss. I had no clue what I was doing, but it wasn't bad. Overall impression? He was nice, but wrote too many sappy and predictable notes. But a good first boyfriend. (laughs) Josh? March 1994. Looks, about my height. Outstanding features, none. Intelligence, pretty smart, bad speller. Personality, nice, funny. Memorable moments, technically speaking, I'm still going out with him because we didn't break up, just stopped writing. (laughs) Overall impression, he was the first of what was to be many two to three day affairs. Nick, March 1995. Looks, tall, outstanding features. He was an incredible piano player. Intelligence, average. Personality, nice, normal. Memorable moments. We got together at Heather's party, the one that she spent the entire night making out with Derek on the couch. He broke up with me because he still liked Heather, and I started going out with Daryl two hours later. (laughs) Daryl, March. Looks, my height, little kid cute. Outstanding features, none. Intelligence, he was smart. Personality, nice, funny. Memorable moments, we were never alone together. Someone else was always there, usually Ryan. Ryan. (laughs) April 1995. Looks, brown hair and eyes, nice tan. Outstanding features, his mom was really, really nice. (laughs) Intelligence, smart, personality, exactly like (laughs) Daryl. Memorable moments, can I taste your lip balm was his line. (laughs) He was the first guy who ever ate dinner with me and my family. Kevin, July 1995. Looks, blonde hair and blue eyes. Outstanding features, Curly, curly blonde hair, and he had at least four co-ed naked sports shirts. (laughs) Intelligence, I haven't got a clue. I barely knew him. (laughs) Personality, I think he had one. (laughs) Memorable moments. We were together all of two days at band camp. He wasn't particularly memorable. Aaron, July 1995. Looks, brown eyes, curly brown hair. Outstanding features, his hair was brown at the roots, then blonde for two inches where he bleached it. Intelligence, pretty smart. Personality, seductive. Seriously. (laughs) Memorable moments, I asked him if he wanted to go for a walk with me, and he said, should I bring my condoms? I said no. (laughs) He 
told me all kinds of interesting things. See diary for details. <laughs> Brian, April 1996. Looks, tall, blue eyes, kind of blonde hair. Outstanding features, his really outstandingly curly hair, and the look on his face when he loved me, or thought he did. Intelligence, really, really smart, especially in science-type stuff, and he's an incredible guitar player. Personality, subject to extreme changes. When we were going out, he was the nicest, sweetest person in the world. After he broke up with me, he was nice to everyone but me. <laughs> Memorable moments, there's a ton and a half. The night before we got together the first time was the music fest dance where we negatively wished on stars. We sat by each other in biology and held hands in class. Overall impressions, I'm still not sure where things stand between us. When I was a kid, it seemed like every year in English class, we would do a poetry unit. We'd have to study poems and learn about all the different forms, and then eventually we'd have to write poems of our own. But our next reader, Maz, Maz wrote poetry not because he had to for school, but because he wanted to for himself. At our Ottawa show, Maz shared a couple of poems that he never intended to share with anybody, let alone a room full of strangers. Please welcome Maz to the Grown Ups Three Things They Wrote As Kids stage. I always yearned to see the ocean, smell its soft, salty breeze. I would spend every year waiting for the day I could lay by the shore and listen to the soft whispers of the wave that come crashing simultaneously. <laughs> Telling me the tales of this world. Brave sailors spent their entire lives venturing through my realms, whispered the first tumbling wave. <laughs> I am what separates two distant lovers, yelled the ocean with a stronger wave that reached far, this time tickling my dry feet. I took away the lives of many who dared to uncover my mysteries. Came another wave that forced me to back up for my spot. <laughs> Eventually, a soft wave landed on the shore, asking, what would a man of the shore desire from my vicious nature? <laughs> I said, all I desire is to see the magnificent colors on your surface as the sun sinks down your realms, turning from an ocean blue to a warm orange like scorching desert dunes. <laughs> okay, settle down. <laughs> All right. I'm ready to be a man of the sea for eternity. A lover separated from his loved one. A sunken sailor. Only to see the beauty that hides within you. Now, that one has a bit of a shift in tone, so get ready for that. It's called, it's called Rage. So, yeah. <laughs> I got my different sides, so don't worry about me. So it goes like that. Rage. That furious feeling. Feeling like a wild animal inside a cage. 
roaring, swinging its claws at anyone that gets near it, banging its head on metal bars, feeling like the most furious creature in the entire universe. It feels like nothing can stop you, like an unstoppable boulder rolling down a hill. It feels like you can smash into walls, and they would crumble down and fall. And whatever, whoever gets in your way will be stomped on forever. (laughs) Yet, I'm still in a cage. I can't even get out of those damn bars. I'm like a child who believes he can take down the beast, but can barely look it in the eyes. The only thing I can do best is rage. Last one out and least, it's a poem called The Puzzle. It's probably shorter than the ones I've said, so I won't take too much of your time. So it goes like that. You are the border of the puzzle. All of the pieces have to be there before you start forming the inside. Eventually, every piece will fit together on its own. Even if one piece is missing, you don't have to look at it as if it's necessarily supposed to be a certain color or form. It could be anything. Maybe the last piece is lost for a reason, and the reason could be another piece just waiting for you to find it. Yeah. And the rest is mystery. Thank you very much. After the show, I asked Maz if he still writes poetry, and he told me, yeah, he does. But he said he doesn't share most of it with the public, just those closest to him. Jeans. They're an American staple. No article of clothing is more closely linked to our nation's history. Today, denim's a $90 billion industry, but that success didn't come easy. I'm David Brown, the host of Wondery Show Business Wars. We go deep into some of the biggest corporate rivalries of all time. And in our latest series, we're unzipping how Levi's, Lee, and Wrangler managed to take workman's wear from the frontier to the runway and closets around the world. Join us for Denim Wars. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Now, Maz wasn't the only one at our Ottawa show who took his teenage emotions and channeled them into poetry. When Rose was 15, she wrote a series of poems all about boys that she liked. A quick heads up, Rose includes a cuss word in one of her poems, which we do not bleep. So all of these poems are written about different guys, and they're all very short. Unrequited love. Emotions fade and people change, although my feelings for you stay the same. You'll always be my star. (laughs) The one I think about when times get rough. You help me through everything. I'll always love you. You'll always be my one and my only Kyle. (laughs) Okay. I silently worship you from afar. (laughs) Away from school, you are so flirtatious. But at school, it feels like you don't know who I am. I pray for a chance to talk to you. I want you to open up. I won't hurt you, I promise. (laughs) In fact, I live to please you. (laughs) Two days later. 
tough fight, but I have to win. I need to let go. My emotions are crazy. I used to shake at the sight of you. My knees went weak and my heart raced, but now it needs to die away. The person who gets you will be ever so lucky, and those who've lost you don't know what they've lost. <laughs> Your words sting. Fuck the media. <laughs> Just because I don't look like everyone else, you think I'm worth nothing. You're pretty ugly, and I used to like you, you shallow bastard. <laughs> it's not like you're going anywhere with your life anyway. I'll see you in the gutter in 10 years. <laughs> Maybe you aren't worth my time. <clears throat> Number four. I picture us together, beyond the thoughts of others, just us, together and alone. Happy in one another's company. But then I realize that I'm daydreaming. The horrible truth rises again. I can never be with you, for I am with your best friend. <laughs> I never did get with that guy. He ended up being gay. <laughs> Thank you. One of the things I love about kid writing is how it can act as a kind of time capsule, not just a record of who we were when we were young, but also a record of the kinds of things that seemed important at the time, our hopes and our dreams, and in the case of our next reader, our anxieties. When Todd was in grade 13, he wrote a short story for school entitled, The Man Sitting Next to Me is Dead. <laughs> What's it about? A teenager who believes that the old man sitting beside him in the library is dead. Please welcome Todd to our stage. So this was when I was 18 years old. Among the stacks and in the midst of the biography section, I sat pondering the thoughts of some modern-day philosopher. I spent many a night in this section away from the human interaction that lay out on the streets beyond the wall of books. In this place, I would not be questioned, irritated, or judged by a society that feeds upon me. <sighs> I sat quietly paralleling my own being to that of this philosopher, reflecting on questions that I had come to know about my own existence. Hours before I had sat at a desk, pencil pushing, alert to every detail and action I took. I would become lost in my own little chaotic world of confusion, awaiting a moment of peace. Silence seemed to creep through the labyrinth of periodicals, journals, and paperbacks, only to be trampled by the onset of two young girls running throughout the rows of books. The loud plodding of their feet pounded at my solitude. <laughs> the crescendo of their infant giggles, racing... It gets better. Um, 
<laughs> Racing throughout the book-built maze pulled my eyes toward them. I watched as they disappeared into the fiction section. Then, in turning, I noticed the man in the study carol behind me was severely hunched over. He must be sleeping, I reassured myself, beginning to find this very amusing. Looking closer, I saw no motion of respiration in his bulky mass. Could he be? No, that's ridiculous. I conversed with myself as fear began to spark within my body. I noticed that we were the only people in this section and therefore came to a dreadful conclusion. What happens if they find me reading philosophy to a dead man? What will I say? I thought of leaving right away before he could be discovered and exiting down the back stairwell. I started to pack up my books. Preparing to leave, I looped my scarf around my neck and reached for my jacket. In putting it on, I grabbed my bag and crept silently away from him. Slowly, turning to venture down the rows of fiction, I nervously eyed every row in fear of being observed before I withdrew. The crescendo of giggles resumed, and upon hearing them, I became engulfed with horror. I cursed the little hellions, and I hurriedly raced to get to the exit before they discovered me. The sweat began dripping from my brow. As I ran, I carried my bag tucked into my stomach as a receiver would carry a football into the end zone. Hi there, mister. What you doing? A squeaky, high-pitched voice questioned me. I halted. Disgusted and defeated, I said... Nothing. And I sullenly returned down the long corridor to my seat. There he sat still, slouched over like a top-heavy sack of potatoes, his black horn-rimmed glasses delicately perched on the end of his nose. Irritated, I sat there, my fingers tapping some melodramatic composition that added to my frustration. I rose from my seat, creeping towards the body, hoping to satisfy my curiosity and confirm my assumptions. As I neared him, the stiff bristles of his semi-brush cut seemed to point out a disgusting thought that soon rigor mortis would set in. <laughs> the folded ripples of his blue knit sweater seemed to encase his body within the stiff, dark, coffin-like structure of his brown suede jacket. Beyond him was a mess of open books, well-read letters, and a collection of favored events. I leaned closer, uh, noticing that the, book, the open book in front of him contained a picture of Jane Russell clad in a bikini, smiling superficially, while the cover of the book next to it revealed the solemn, stern, empty look of Robert Mitchum. I was intrigued and cautiously looked about, seeing if the coast was clear and feeling possessed. I carefully began picking about through his belongings to search out his identity. Around the corner of the stacks, again, came the irritating cries of the two little demons. Gotcha, cried the taller of the two, and then with a tremendous crack, she lambasted the younger on the head. Giggling, she dis disappeared once again into the maze while the younger one was screaming behind her. I relaxed and lowered the book I had quickly grabbed to conceal my devious intentions. Then an idea hit me, and outstretching my arm, I let go of the book. The cracking sound seemed to dart throughout the maze as the book crashed to the floor below. No movement occurred in the body, not even a flinch. Slowly, I raised my index finger. I leaned towards him and quickly jabbed my finger delicately into his side. <sighs> One... <laughs> Once again, no movement, not even a sigh or a shifting of weight. 
jabbing harder once again, producing no reaction, I returned to my seat. I, I thought of how uncomfortable it would have been if, I, if he were alive and I had disturbed him. Then I would have had to explain my actions. Feeling utterly criminal, I sighed, and I leaned over, jabbing him once again. After gaining no reaction, I returned to my reading, ignoring his existence. Once again, I lost myself in the dreadful thought of the discovery of the body by some authoritative person, a cynic who would not believe my innocence. With no one to back me up, I could hear them saying, look at his innocent face. He's just the type to be a homicidal killer. <laughs> my heart began to race, and then came the wheezing. His body contorted as a sneeze that resembled the pumping of a basketball overtook him. Startled, he massaged his face, looked at his watch, and repositioning his glasses, rose awkwardly from his chair and commenced collecting his belongings. Once packed, he turned and for the very first time looked at me. His hollow stare emitted pain. It seemed to invade my imagination as I had invaded his territory with my insensitive curiosity. I felt uneasy and silently pleaded for him to let me be. He then smiled and waddled away, disappearing into the periodicals. <laughs> Silence crept back through the labyrinth, and I returned to my reading. The reverberating sound of infant feet began nearing me. I watched as the two young girls dodged one another, innocently enjoying themselves, oblivious to the others around them. They danced and giggled out of sight as I watched. I then put aside the book and remembered the dead man's smile. God, ladies and gentlemen. If you're sitting there listening and thinking, boy, oh boy, that is a pretty legit piece of literature, you are not alone. The man sitting next to me is dead. One Todd, the OECTA Teacher's Award in grade 13. <laughs> Round of applause for that. Moving to a new place is often difficult, especially when you're a kid. Leaving your friends, starting at a new school, being the new kid in town. Moving can be exciting, but it can also be disorienting and scary. When Jenny was 13, she moved to Goose Bay, Labrador. And if you've never been, Goose Bay is a pretty small place with a population of about 8,500 people. And at our Ottawa show, Jenny shared a diary entry that she wrote just a few months after the move. This is 1994. Dear Diary, I haven't written in this for a while. I'm having a great life. Although I noticed tonight that time goes really fast. It's been two years since I wrote in here. I understand that as you get older, you notice things you never noticed before, like time. I keep wishing I had more time, but then I think, what for? <laughs> I don't need any more time. I'm still alive and healthy, along with my family. I don't understand. I'm only 13, and I wish I was a kid again. When I was a kid, I wished I was older. Confusing, huh? I just moved to Goose Bay three months ago. I have so many questions I wish someone would answer. Not about Goose Bay, about life. <laughs> it's so confusing. I really wish that my mom would let me smoke. But then, if she let me, I probably wouldn't smoke. Ugh, this is for when I grow up and have kids. I would like to understand them and let them do whatever they want. <laughs> but I know it's going to be hard. I had my period. It's not such a big thing anymore. 
I think it's stupid that I actually wanted it. <laughs> this is the longest I've ever written in this. I have to write Jenny B. I miss her. I met lots of new people since I moved here. I'm not sure if they like me. They say they do, but I don't think they do. It's probably just me, because I'm not used to the way they live yet. It was <laughs> Labrador, but okay. Uh, I do good in school. I like school. It's neat to be able to write and read and speak. I wonder what... <laughs> I wonder what I'm going to think when I read this in 20 years. Will I understand what I wrote? I don't understand what I wrote two years ago. I hope me and my kids get along as well as me and my mom. I love her so much. She's my pride and joy, believe it or not. <laughs> Gotta go, it's 1.02 p.m. I got school tomorrow. <laughs> I have a lot more to say, but I gotta go now. I love mom, bye. I love mom, Jenny. I love mom so much, this is for her. Like she was gonna read it. XOXOXOXOXOXO. Dot, 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 dot. I'm crying now, because I just read this over again. Thank you. That is Grown Ups Read Things They Wrote as Kids. Our show was recorded live at Yuck Yucks in Ottawa and produced by Jenna Meisner. Olivia Nashmi is our associate producer. Our music is by Poddington Bear and Lullatone. And our closing theme is Oh Dear Diary by Sloan. Now that you've heard Grown Ups Read Things They Wrote as Kids, why not watch it too? You can see video of every reader at our Ottawa show on YouTube. Just search for Grown Ups Read Things They Wrote as Kids. We also post videos to Facebook, where again, you can search for Grown Ups Read Things They Wrote as Kids. I'm Dan Meisner. Thanks for listening.